Gurave Gaurachandraya Radhikaya Tadalaya Krishnaya Krishna Bhaktaya Thad Bhaktaya Namo Namaha So, pranam to all of you. <coughs> Welcome. We are today continuing with our series on Radical Personalism. Sri Radical Personalism. <laughs> Meeting number 11th today, where we will be studying or starting, so to say, a new section inside a bigger series, a meta-narrative inside the main narrative of radical personalism. We will be talking about Guru Tattva, starting today for maybe seven classes or so, to almost two months delving into this particular Tattva aspect of reality. So today we will have our first uh, meeting on Guru Tattva, we will be speaking about the difference between Guru and Sri Guru. Guru with small g, so to say, and Sri Guru with capital letters. But as usual, before going there, let's make some brief recap of what we saw last week. We were speaking about non-dual thinking, second part of non-dual thinking. We made that in two parts. And last uh, Tuesday, we spoke about learning and complementing from other traditions as an aspect of non-dual thinking. We already established in our first meeting on non-dual thinking that reality was non-dual. Uh, so we should be able, if reality is non-dual, universally non-dual, we should be able, not necessarily forced, but able to discover that same non-dual foundation in other mystical traditions. If a tradition is a mystical tradition, basically it means they are non-dual tradition. They, are, they accept this non-duality as a bedrock of reality, as a substratum. Of course, when we are saying this, opening to other tradition, acknowledging this common ground, doesn't mean all religions are the same in every sense of the term, but they share enough common ground at the same time. So, And it's important first to have this common ground that we all share in place before entering into the differences between every tradition uh, with lack of that particular foundation. Mm. Of course, in the beginning of our journey, if we are neophytes in our practice, we may need to be properly grounded in our own tradition. We may need uh, to be more elitist, so to say, than egalitarian. Uh, but eventually in time, at least we should be open to acknowledge that that possibility of interaction is there. Although not necessarily everyone may feel the call in that direction, but that's a valid uh, opportunity. So we, in this connection, also spoke in terms of perennialism, which is another way of talking about this idea of finding common essence in all these wisdom traditions. And we also mentioned how our own Gaudiya tradition has exhibit, exhibits a very interesting degree of this perennialism, whether in the form of Bhaktivinoda and his different writings, in the concept of Sanatana Dharma or the function of the soul, in Mahaprabhu's own interactions with different people from different traditions, in our Goswamis, including in their own writings, uh, notions and concepts from Acharyas from other traditions, other religions, and even informing the theology of the Gaudiya Sampradaya with concepts from other traditions. So that's an interesting point. The Brihad Bhagavatamrita and Gopakumar's uh, journey, with, which is full of interreligious dialogue, so to say, <laughs> or how in our notion of parampara, many times personalities like Ramanuja or Madhu are included who are not technically Gaudiya Vaishnav, so to say, 
So in that sense, we we share some examples from our own tradition to show how this principle is present there. Also, we address the possibility of, okay, we, we are receiving some scars, impressions from other people, from other traditions, other, quote-unquote, <laughs> but it's not so only what we receive from others, but we how we choose to incorporate that in our own project, so to say. So it's not just about receiving some impression from other tradition and that will necessarily confuse me, but if properly integrated, that can nourish my my journey. And indeed, we spoke about that, not only appreciating other traditions, but even being able to rediscover our own tradition by speaking with other traditions. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, of course, with this that we are saying there are absolute parallels in our traditions. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, there may be different ideas, different practices. Some of them may be totally different. Some of them may be, we may take them and incorporate them. And even in our practice, there is place for that as well. We also spoke about, in this connection, the idea of interfaith and intrafaith dialogue, apart of speaking about perennialism or theological cross-pollination. We also invoke the idea of interfaith, intrafaith, like the idea of, okay, it's nice to talk with others, interfaith, but first you have to talk with yourself. First you have to talk with your own tradition. Be grounded in that, intrafaith, then you go for the interfaith experience, and after that interfaith, you have a further intrafaith. You return to your own tradition, so to say, enriched and informed by what you were able to draw from other mystical traditions. So that's a very desirable scenario for those who at least who feel so. And we extend the idea of intrafaith dialogue, not only talking with our own tradition in terms of grounding ourselves, but also in, the, in its most literal interpretation, talking to your own tradition, talking to other members of the Gaudiya Sampradaya and being able to dialogue and communicate with one another despite differences, agreeing that we may be disagreeing according to the many nuances that we will find in our particular school. Because as we mentioned, remember how we relate to something that means speaks about how we relate to everything. So one particular aspect of the way we relate with our own tradition or other traditions also is telling how we relate if I with my tradition or with other traditions that we really reality in itself. So that's what we saw last Tuesday. Let's continue after the recap with today's talk topic on Guru Tattva. And let's begin with some introduction, which may be not so in short, so to say, on the difference between Guru with small g and Sri Guru with capital letters. So let's delve into the intricacy of of the identity of the principle of the Guru, which is not as easy as we may think. Mm-hmm. But before going to that difference, a brief connection with the previous classes. Mm-hmm. Because remember, in our previous four previous classes, we talked about first, uh, in those first two, about individuation, and in the next two, about non-dualism or non-dual thinking. So individuation has a lot to do with uniqueness and difference and specificity. And non-dual thinking has more to do with the unity, underlying unity behind everything. So we address difference, diversity and unity, so to say. So now in in this Guru Tattva uh, section, we will try to combine these two. Unity and diversity met in the idea of Guru. Because Guru is said to be one and different from Krishna. And we will, of course, explain how this is so. So somehow, 
we are trying to allow the different topics from each class to overflow and take us to the next idea. So from individuation, diversity, non-dual thinking, unity, Guru Tattva, unity and diversity. And in this series on Guru Tattva, we also will approach the topic of Guru Tattva, let's say not from the generally addressed uh, topic, which is of course totally valid and beautiful, which is the praise and the glories of Guru. We also will mention that of course on some level, but mostly we will go to, how to say, aspects of this reality which are not generally addressed or not addressed enough, at least in my particular opinion or ex experience in our Gaudiya community. And this is a very crucial aspect of radical personalism as well, to address what's not being addressed but needs to. So, well, let's see how the experiment goes. And since we invoked the connection between Guru Tattva and our previous classes, let's make a more even tight connection with the previous series, section of classes on non-dualism, because Guru Tattva is closely tied with non-dualism, and this will, with this will, we'll begin the, the point that I want to make between the difference between Guru and Sri Guru. How is Guru Tattva related closely to non-dualism? Well, we already mentioned, first we should try to understand the non-dual foundation of reality before appreciating the diversity of Lila in our own tradition. We have to understand how Gaudiya tradition is non-dual, and on that non-dual foundation we can appreciate the world of diversity. Or if you want to add, go to other traditions, appreciate the non-dual common ground, and then you can delve into the details. So similarly, we could say in this connection, we should first understand the non-dual foundation of Guru Tattva, how Guru Tattva is one, as we will show, before attempting to appreciate the diversity side of that equation that is expressed in a diversity of individuals. So unless first we understand that Guru is one, we may not be able to understand how Guru is more than one, so to say. We may get like, confused by that. Srila Prabhupada began one of his famous lectures on Vyasa Puja saying that there's only one Guru. Guru is one. Mm -hmm. So there's no more than one Guru in one sense of the equation. Mm -hmm. If we don't have this foundation in place, probably our understanding of Guru Tattva may be dualistic mm -hmm. without proper non-dual foundation in place. Again, and we already explained some of the problems of being dualistic, especially in relation to something so sacred like Guru Tattva, because in the name of Guru Tattva we may end up promoting dualism if, if we don't properly understand the non-dual foundation of it. Mm -hmm. So again, before going to the diversity of the Absolute, let's go to the non-dual, before going to the diverse expression of Guru Tattva or the individualized expression of Sri Guru, let's first understand its non-dual foundation. Mm -hmm. So, the individualized expression of Sri Guru is called Vyasti Guru, another term for that, Vyasti Guru. That refers to the Guru, the individual devotee, so to say, that represents that particular principle. Mm -hmm. And the non-dual aspect of Sri Guru, so to say, mm -hmm. the macrocosmic aspect, mm -hmm. in contrast with the microcosmic, is the Samasti Guru. These terms come from Bhakti Sandarbha, 286 Anucheda. Jiva Goswami invokes this idea, Vyasti and Samasti. Just please bear with those terms in mind because we will refer to them a little bit. 
So Samasti Guru means the universal aspect of the Guru. When Guru cannot be two but one, Samasti. Krishna himself, the absolute being, Guru, the original Guru, he himself says in Shastra, I am the Guru. So this Samasti Guru principle, universal, macrocosmic, is represented by a multiplicity of agents, Vyasti Gurus. So it's the agency and the agent, so to say, Samasti and Vyasti. So generally, and, and I will resort into that here, when I say Guru with small g, of course, you don't see if I use small or capital letters while speaking just by writing, <laughs> but Guru with small g may generally refer to Vyasti Guru to the individual representative. And Sri Guru, with capital letters, generally refers to the Samasti Guru, the macrocosmic principle. Or at times, Sri Guru, we will use the term Sri Guru to refer to an Vyasti Guru who fully represents Samasti Guru. Or to make it more nuanced, <laughs> Sri Guru will be, if, if, if a Vyasti Guru is not fully representing Sri Guru, the portion that is being represented will be Sri Guru, so to say. <laughs> Guru Tattva is complex, as you are seeing. Mm -hmm. So again, the principle of Samasti Guru is what we generally refer to as Sri Guru. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's called also Akanda Guru Tattva, mm -hmm. or the like the principle of Sri Guru, like a principle. It sounds a little bit abstract, but it's like a, a conglomerate. That's the Guru, the agency, the Guru agency. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, we should. the point is, Guru is not an idea that is limited to one person. Mm -hmm. It's not the principle that is limited to one person. It's a non-dual agency mm -hmm. that reveals itself through many particular individuals. Mm -hmm. And the revelation of that agency through many agents will happen not necessarily in black and white terms. Again, the revelation may happen proportionate Krishna will, <clears throat> Krishna will reveal himself through one particular agent proportionately to how much that individual is surrendered to Sri Hari and his will. Mm -hmm. So according to that, the principle of Sri Guru will flow <clears throat> through him or through her, mm -hmm. which is another point. <laughs> Guru is not limited to <clears throat> someone in, in, in a male body. And of course, in Sanskrit, when referring to a guru who is in female body, we'll use the term gurvi. And since it may not be so usual, I will constantly use the word guru, but this is not limited again to someone in a male body. I'm just mentioning this. I won't enter into the details of that. Nowadays, there is a lot also of interaction about whether women can be gurus or not. And for me, the topic is so basic and simple that instead of talking in detail about that, it's for me just to go to the simple point that Shastra basically says for, for serving in the capacity of Guru it has nothing to do with gender of biology but inner adhikar. So if you have the proper qualification to serve as such, that's it. You are you are not to be seen even as man or woman at that point. No? So just a clarification. <laughs> so so throughout this series of classes on Guru Tato tried to bear this subtle but very important difference in mind. Again, one side of the Guru equation is the individual who occupies that post and serves in that capacity, the Vyasti Guru. And the other part of the equation is the foundational side, so to say, the principle of Sri Guru, sometimes called 
Samasti Guru, which is non different from Krishna himself, and who will express itself through a variety of individuals or Vyasti Gurus in different levels according to the Vyasti Gurus' uh, realization, so to say. So it's an important point to have in mind. And personally, I, I consider that in general terms, at least not, of course, in, in a very absolute way, but the present stage of our Gaudiya community reflects some lacking of this crucial insight about the differences between these two sides of the Guru equation. And, and how this is happening, I think any of us can try it for ourselves, with ourselves. Not just think yourself about when you hear, every time you hear the word Guru, what do you think about? Generally, we may think about a particular person, a particular individual, and not go to the non-dual foundational side of the equation, which is pretty important, pretty foundational. <laughs> so in that way, we may have a fragmented or segmented notion. Again, I'm not saying it's happening, but in many cases it's happening, a dualistic approach to Sri Guru Tattva. And, and that makes us lose sight of the non-dual principle, which is unifies, which unifies everything, as we already mentioned, and which again, is represented by each individual on one level or another. So let's be careful of not falling into this form of guru dualism, so to say. Another way that we may be dualistic in terms of the guru, and I just briefly touch on that because it's another whole topic altogether, is to differentiate between diksha and siksha guru sometimes, like thinking one is more important than the other, in case there are two different people, because the same individual can render those two functions. We, we know that when Srila Siddha Maharaj was asked about this, he said the most important guru is the one who's helping you the most. Bilba Mangala Thakur, interestingly, he offers pronouns in his writings first to Chintamani, the prostitute, who was his Siksha guru, then to Somagiri, who was his Diksha guru, and then to Krishna, who he considered also his Siksha guru. He has some personal interaction with him, as we know. But he all he started with Siksha Guru and he ended with Siksha Guru also. Sila Prabhupada comments on this important point in, in, in a purport in Chaitanya Charitamrita 1147. Let me share it with you, it's brief. He says, He does not only make clear that there's no difference between Diksha and Siksha, but between Krishna and the Guru, emphasizing this idea of the non dual side of the equation. He says, there is no difference between the shelter-giving Supreme Lord and the initiating and instructing spiritual masters. If one foolishly discriminates between them, he commits an offense in the discharge of devotional service. So we should be careful again about these forms of dualism, because Prabhupada himself is making it clear. This dualism with Guru Tattva is a form of basically aparath, trying to fragment the non-dual foundation of reality. So needless to say, but if we lose sight of this paramount non-dual foundation in relation to Guru Tattva, this basically means losing sight of almost everything. Because if that happens, if we start to address Guru Tattva in dualistic terms, if our own conception of Guru Tattva stops being non-dual and becomes dualistic, Guru Tattva stops being the Absolute, represented through that agency. Guru Tattva stops being Krishna, as it is. And Guru Tattva starts to become something else. I don't know what, <laughs> you tell me. Sometimes it starts to become, a, of course, a fragmented reality, 
for us, not in itself, it remains what it is, but in our own conception, starts to become a fragmented reality, or sometimes even it becomes kind of a popularity market, and gurus, a competition game, whatever, duality, duality, duality. And that's not supposed to happen <laughs> with something as sacred as, as the Guru principle. Mm -hmm. So therefore we need to have a very clear understanding of this Tattwa, which, which is very intricate and complex, we have, I must admit. Mm -hmm. It has to be in place. You know? It is said that Guru Tattwa is one of the most difficult Tattwas to understand. Mm -hmm. Or in other words, Guru Tattwa is one of the easiest Tattwas to misunderstand another way to say the same thing so we have to pay close attention mm -hmm. so let's play close attention and go to the next section uh, this was a very introductory idea between the difference of the difference between guru and sri guru or biasti samasti hopefully we had that in place then now let's continue talking about what's what is worshipable in the guru and what is idolatry mm -hmm. in general way to begin with Again, in this series, I won't enter into the details of the unending glories of, of the Guru, the virtues of, of the principle of Sri Guru that are worshipable for us as Gaudias. I already did that for the last 22 years, approximately, and I will continue doing so, but not maybe, not. I won't focus on that in this particular series of classes. But what I like to clarify in this connection is what is the thing that we should be worshipping? if you will, when we are worshipping the Guru principle, or how to worship Sri Guru for the right reasons. That's an important point. We already spoke in previous classes that some of us may remain as Gaudiya Vaishnavas for the wrong reasons. And that's not the idea. That lets itself to misrepresentation. So similarly, we, some of us, may be worshipping Sri Guru for the wrong reasons. It's not that the person is not worshipable or the principle is not worshipable, but we may conducting the worship for the wrong reasons, with the wrong conception. Mm -hmm. So let's try to briefly address that on some level. Mm -hmm. So in brief, <clears throat> what does it make a, a guru worshipable for us, for a disciple? Basically, the level in which she or he <laughs> represents Sri Krishna, mm -hmm. to put it simply. The degree to which that person, individual, is represented to Krishna, that's what we are worshipping. The representational side. How much the representation is there. Which, of course, is tied to the inner bhakti of the Guru. According to how much bhakti is in the heart, Krishna is attracted to that and will exp express himself through that. Mm -hmm. Bhagavan comes to us through the bhakti in the heart of the sadhu, so to say. So, in that way, we when we worship the Vyasti Guru, again, the individual person serving in that capacity, we shouldn't worship him or her independent of this point, independent of his, her representation of Bhagavan, his and her inner bhakti. And we worship the teachings, the example of that person, which ideally are symptoms of the inner world of devotion of that person. Because if we take that out, what's the difference between a guru and an ordinary person, so to say, ordinary person? What's the difference? What, what makes the Guru especially worshipable? We need to know why. What's the reply to this question? Because if not, we may be just worshipping who knows what again. So we have to establish this line clearly, because if not, we may end up engaging in some form of personality cult or something, hmm? Hmm. which is worship 
to worship someone externally for the wrong reasons. That's basically a personality cult. Even if the person is worshipable, <laughs> but you are worshiping them for the wrong reasons, that becomes cultish. Mm -hmm. So, if, in other words, if you worship your guru only because he or she is your guru, because he's my guru, I worship him, that maybe you are worshiping your my, your mind. <laughs> or because you have projected some or over-idealized in your mind how the guru should be and you have your own idea and you're just imposing your own notions on the person. But again, you are conducting that worship, quote-unquote worship, without considering the inner, the inner world of bhakti of the guru. His level of representing Krishna does not being considered. So in that case, we will be indulging in some form of idolatry, we may call it, false worship. Remember, idolatry or is not worshipping the wrong person. Idolatry also can be worshipping the right person for the wrong reasons. So it's not that easy. <laughs> or it's quite easy to fall into that, in other words. So we should be careful. And this happens sometimes, and this is most in part for us as disciples. Again, here we are not just questioning how a guru should be, but how we as students should be as well. Many times we want just cheap salvation and we want a fast food messiah or something like that. And, and we have, we may have some inherent laziness and that combined with our desire for some miraculous uh, avatar or whatever <laughs> uh, may make us accept this idea that um, I don't need to hear all this class and all this troublesome, time-consuming, complicated knowledge about Guru Tattva. Why? Not why? But probably because we are getting a wrong idea of what's guru and we are engaging in personality cult and idolatry in the name of the higher thing, so to say. So again, we, we need to know what to worship in the guru and what is expected from us as disciples. Again, there is something, it's, we, to, be, to become a disciple is not just a ritual, if you will, no? some, formal, some formality that we went through, now I'm a disciple. So I don't need to think and speak about these topics. No, it's not like that. We are not disciples because just we underwent some formality, like changing our name or getting some mark on your forehead or some pat on your back in front of a burning banana or something. <laughs> that, that, and end of the story. No? That doesn't make you a disciple. No? And now I have my in, immigration document required for pearly gates and I'm saved and liberated. All on externals. No, no, that's not like that. So, interestingly, we are speaking about idolatry and the difference with worship. But even if we want to talk about worship, we should say that worship, the guru as an individual, in one sense, is not so much to be worshipped, but to be followed. Mm -hmm. Follow his footsteps. Mm -hmm. Embodying, the, the footsteps are the one who embody his example of worshipable devotion. We worship the inner devotion, we worship the ideal that the Guru represents, but we follow the person and the example, so to say. Because if, if we don't make this point clear also in the name of worship, we may be worshipping externally hmm, as the best excuse not to follow the example of that person. Hmm? Because ultimately it's about Anusar, which means follow the essence of that Guru is representing. Hmm? And so-called worship is Anukar, imitation, just some external show so we don't have to commit ourselves with something deeper. So let's go to the next section connected to this, trying to further unpack this idea of the difference between following and worshipping, 
but also in the connection of how Sri Guru personifies our own potential. Hmm? This is something that Srila Siddhamaras said, used to, to say, and that's a beautiful idea. You know? Sri Guru is your own potential appearing in front of you. Hmm? That's like very astonishing notion, basically. All that you can be is manifesting in an embodied form in front of you. Hmm? So, in other words, what the Guru represents is not different from what you can become, which is a big commitment. It's a beautiful darshan and revelation and portal, but that's not a joke. That's not easy even. That's very deep. Lots of responsibilities expected. So, <clears throat> sometimes that can be pretty intimidating, even on an unconscious level. It's too much to have someone constantly reminding me all that I can be. And reminding me, I'm not there yet, so to say. So we don't want to get neurotic because of that. But sometimes even an unconscious survival mechanism may take us to, I don't want to deal with all that it implies to have someone representing all my potential. So we may try to, <clears throat> again, start worshipping him externally or her as an evasive tactic, not to take full responsibility for following Guru, for attaining the potential that he or she is showing to me, basically. To avoid acknowledging that potential, again, which is reflected through that person and which has to be actualized in us. You follow my point? So in that, in that way, we may resort to worship to avoid following, so to say. So externally, it seems I'm doing the right thing, but internally, I'm not doing the right thing. So in that case, that so-called worship, again, is another form of idolatry, personality, cult, you name it. So we worship, again, as we mentioned, we worship the ideal that the Guru embodies, but we follow the example that he or she shows in order to attain the worshipable idea. Remember that the Guru is God coming in a representational sense. or It's a person representing Krishna, basically, and Krishna expressing that. That's a subtle but important idea. Worship the ideal... We worship the ideal, we follow the person, so to say. And if we worship the person, sometimes one may worship his guru or guru purnim or whatever, it is only because of the ideal that such a person is representing and embodying. It's connected to his inner world of bhakti. It's not separate from it. You cannot separate it. If you separate that, you are not worshipping Sri Guru. Who knows what you may be worshipping. So again, Guru is worshipable and is equated with God in the scriptures, as we will see, in the higher, but in a higher sense, in one sense also we could say everything falls into that category in another sense. Everything is revealing God to us, technically speaking. God is in every atom, so technically speaking, I mean, Guru is representing God, but everything else is representing God as well, if you have the eyes to see. Since we don't have them, generally we start with a guru that train our eyes, Ajnana, Timiranda, Seagina, etc., like the verse says. So we can find the principle of guru expressing in so many other places till we end up entering a land of gurus, in the words of Silasidhar Maharaj. Mm-hmm. If you go to India, they say Atiti Devo Bhavan, an uninvited guest is to be treated as God himself. So another person that is to be seen as non-different from God, uninvited guest, whoever than me. <laughs> Or the Bhagavatam saying you should prostrate even in front of an animal since, since God is residing there. 
another idea of okay it's not different god is he's representing god somehow my dog my cat <laughs> so in other words the principle is to perceive the presence of god everywhere that's the goal of life that's the vision of the highest devotee loving god serving god and that takes us to this uh, presence of god in everywhere because as a symptom of your love so in connection to the guru he or she is to be seen as god because god's will flows uniquely to that person ideally again we are speaking here in the case of the guru of course is a, a good representative of that principle so in that sense the guru is god guru is god as we already mentioned in a representational sense mm -hmm. he's not god in every sense of the term because that will be tantamount to mayabad you are god in every sense mm -hmm. so if the symptom of the greatest person is to see God everywhere, well, the Guru in that sense is a condensed representation, ideally, of God's presence in our life. We have to see God everywhere. Well, I'm not saying it. Well, at least start here with this person, condensed way. And that person will teach you how to see God everywhere else, basically. You know, like it happens with the deity. If you have half darshan of the deity in the altar, but if you properly have darshan, eventually you will realize, oh, the deity is everywhere. No, it's not limited to this corner of my house, so to say. But it's, the, the, it's not localized, but it's universalized in time. You follow? But it starts somewhere. It starts in the corner of your house, and it, it eventually overflows into every aspect of creation. So the same should happen with the guru. No, I'm finding guru here, but if, if there's proper interaction, gradually I will realize... Oh my gosh, no? <laughs> this principle is all-pervading. Mm. So again, everything is worshipable in that sense. Potentially there's nothing profane with this type of prospect. But of course the way we worship the principle of Sri Guru and those who represent the principle of Sri Guru is always something very special because of what we are explaining. They are the ones who open to us this world of possibilities and revelation. So... In before, because it is so delicate and important, we need to pay very close attention. So we know how to properly conduct ourselves in that worship. And we can understand, again, what is the thing that, that we are actually worshipping when we are worshipping the Guru. And not use the, word, the notion of worship to avoid worship, real worship. <laughs> avoid our duties as disciples. Yeah, indeed, a, a, a Guru... A genuine guru will never say to his disciple, worship me. No. But the guru will instruct and expect the disciple to follow his or her example. So that's a different idea. Again, worship the ideal, remember, and follow the guru. The ideal is love of God. Worship the ideal. Follow the example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, the guru has to expect the disciple to follow the example for that the guru has to be strict enough in his own example <laughs> her own example is to give the disciple a proper example to emulate because if, if 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 that's not the case of course we enter into another category which is abuse and other type of things now follow my example and but you are not exemplary enough but if that's in place that's the idea follow the example worship the, the ideal mm -hmm. so again the guru is our own potential appearing in front of us and as beautiful as that may sound this idea of having your own potential in front of us has to be dealt with very carefully, delicately, because again, it can become dangerous. Like everything beautiful, misused can be 
has dark potential, so to say. So we have a very bright potential coming to us in the figure and form of one's guru. But again, we need to know how to coexist with such a prospect, with, with such a potential constant reminder. It's very demanding, try to think about to coexist with someone who is constantly reminding you uh, through example all that you can be. Hmm? And if you are attentive to that, of course, because you can just look in another direction. And again, sometimes unconsciously we may do so. We may escape. It may be too much. And it's okay not to go neurotic, but hopefully we can deal with our relationship with the Guru in such a way that we don't need to escape from that and the Guru can express that potential of all that we can be in a way that is user-friendly and we don't need to how to say, to resort to a show, external show of surrender, to avoid actual surrender, an external show of worship, to avoid actual worship and following. So, of course, there is a responsibility for the disciple, but there is also responsibility for the guru <clears throat> to know, oh, as a guru, I am representing, personifying the potential and the ideal to my disciples. They are finding, seeing that in me. That's not... That's something the Guru has to be aware of. Because by, by being aware of that, the Guru will be able to accompany his, her disciples in such a way that the disciples can get closer and closer to that potential that they see instead of receiving that potential in a way that is intimidating, that they become afraid, that is overwhelming, this is too much, better I run from here, I look in another way, I create a show or whatever. But in a way that as they get closer to that potential, again, the, the, the disciples will feel, will know how to deal with that in a way that is sustainable, user-friendly, not overwhelming, paralyzing, or <laughs> intimidating. And that's a big task for the guru. Again, of course, being guru is not, not a joke, as you may imagine. That's a big task to accompany the disciples in how to deal with their own potential. That's basically what the guru is supposed to do. He's he or she's personifying a potential and he's to guide the students so they can actualize that potential. That's another definition of, of guru that you can make, not like a facilitator in that sense, not a facilitator of potential <laughs> or a facilitator in the process of individuation as we mentioned and in, in helping the disciples to attain all that they can be as unique individuals. That's a much more maybe maybe updated and user-friendly version to describe Guru just to describe him as a benevolent tyrant or an autocrat, which I'm not saying that's wrong, but it needs to be understood in proper context and can be misused. So I think it's good to, to mention this idea of Guru as a facilitator, as a servant of the disciple in that sense as well. So that's a big task for the Guru and also that's a big task for us as disciples to, to allow that to happen in us. So it's a big responsibility on both sides. So <coughs> some thoughts regarding this idea of guru as our potential. Uh, let's continue unfolding some, some similar notions in relation to ideas. Some ideas that sometimes we may invoke not to deal with our own potential at Pirana Sri Guru. We, we may be very expert in doing that, even unconsciously. Resorting to different notions, not to take full responsibility of what it means to have <clears throat> our own fullest potential in front of us. Let's go to the next section. Um, about, we'll speak about 
this idea, some, it may seem something sidetracked, but it's connected. Is the Guru always a Nitya Siddha and an Uttam Bhagavat? Hmm? So again, that's in connection to what we have been talking till now. Sometimes we hear this idea from some devotees. No? The Guru is always a pure devotee of the highest caliber, which sometimes we call an Uttam Bhagavat. Or sometimes the Guru is always, with here, sometimes the Guru is always Nitya Siddha or an eternal liberated associate of Bhagavan who descends from the spiritual world to deliver us, something like that. But interestingly enough, this is not a notion that, at least to my knowledge, this is not mentioned anywhere in Shastra, that the Guru is always Uttam Bhagavat, always Nitya Siddha. Uh, so I think it's important to also think about why we hear sometimes people saying that and why, what takes some devotees to believe that and emphasize that as a must. What's behind that emphasis, <laughs> that absolute claim, so to say? Because again, in Shastra, the main attributes of the Guru, apart from having knowledge of Shastra, is in terms of inner realization, the Gita, the Bhagavad, and the Upanishad will say, Guru Darshin, Brahmanishtam, uh, Sabde Parichanishnatam, Brahmani He has He's a seer of truth. He's firmly situated in the Absolute. He has his senses under control. And... He's drenched into spiritual realization, but he's not saying he has to be an Uttam Bhagavad or Nitya Siddha or something. So let's connect. This is a form of spiritual bypassing. No? Like you try to claim Guru has always to be like that, and probably you're doing that so you don't have to do your part because your Guru is Nitya Siddha or an Uttam Bhagavad, which doesn't mean that you are, <laughs> that you are on that <laughs> So... Again, many of us, without being aware of that, so I'm not demonizing anyone, condemning anyone, just analyzing some possible situations that I'm not necessarily free from them. But many of us sometimes may need, still have the need to idol, idolize, you say idolize, on some level or another, it's not black and white, because this idolatry gives us sometimes this security that my guru is a pure devotee. And understand you need some security, you need to feel I'm in safe ground. Or you or sometimes it gives a sense of control, like I know what's going on. He's this, he's I know who he is, who she is, his identity, his level of situation. And maybe that person is all that and more, but you you are using those terms for for nourish your own lack of faith, lack of security, whatever. Sometimes it may be just our own self-imposed belief, or sometimes a false ego. Extending, not like, or like, if my guru is the best, by extension, I am the best. No, of course, I will never say the second part of the sentence, but that's the implicated meaning. Mm -hmm. So we we may be resorting to utilitarianism even in relation to to the guru. In relation to everything, you use everything for your own purposes, including guru. He has to be the best. He has to be the shiniest, whatever. No. Whatever, in each case will express this principle will express differently, and, and many times to wanting to have the most perfect and highest guru on planet Earth, again sometimes has more to do with our a pattern in ourselves that that a real genuine need for shelter. He has to be perfect. He has to be ideal. So I don't have to deal with any suffering, anxiety, and problem because he's perfect and ideal. So I don't have to enter into any complexity. I don't have to integrate any complexity. And of course, we are not promoting here complexity and suffering for its own sake. We are not advocating masochism. 
But there has to be some this willing, willingness from the part of the disciple to deal with complexity and difficulty, including in relationship with the guru. Hmm? Because if not, we may incur in this form of spiritual bypassing no? and trying to use an over-idealized idea and exploiting in, uh, uh, that person in that way. You know? Like I project, you have to be this, you are this, and the person may be that or may not be that, but you are just projecting your, whatever you want, whatever you need, and that way using the person hmm? to satisfy whatever your needs, your ego, <laughs> or to evade some situations that you need to deal with that you have not fully resolved but you try to solve them superficially by the idea of my guru is the highest so I'm perfectly situated and that not, may not be the case mm. uh, yes that may this may be another form of idolatry or personality cult again to worship someone to worship something in someone that does not belong to that person mm. necessarily it may be there as I mentioned it may not be there so, for example, personality cult in that sense can take this form, over-idealization of the guru. That's the beginning of a personality cult. And when I say over-idealization, I'm saying he has to always, I refer to, he has to always be an itisida. Not necessarily the case. And that doesn't speak less of the guru by saying that. He has to be an Uttam Bhagavata. Not necessarily the case. And that does not speak less of, of of the glory of your guru or sometimes the guru has to be omniscient and infallible in every single sense of the term we'll speak more about that in in the next class but again that doesn't that's not the case as we will see guru is not omniscient literally in the literal sense of the term and so on so the point is why i need to project those things so, of course, when I'm saying all these things, I'm not saying that there are no gurus who are Uttam Bhagavatas, who are qualified, who belong to some of these glorious categories. I'm just pointing here to some unhealthy reasons through which we as disciples, in this case, may be trying to claim those absolutes and establish those truths. Because, again, even your guru may be an Uttam Bhagavat, but you may be trying to establish that by the wrong re for the wrong reasons. Your guru may be a Newton Bhagavad, but you may be claiming that with a wrong motivation from a wrong place. Mm. <clears throat> and also in relation to that, it's important to, to analyze that there's no litmus, litmus, litmus test, you say, to determine if a guru is an Nityasiddha or not. It's not like which is the thermometer to, 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 to prove your Nityasiddha-ness no? or, or, or to even to prove if the guru is Nityasiddha or Sadhana-siddha or similarly, someone say, well, but you can prove he's an Uttam Bhagavad. Actually, if you are not an Uttam Bhagavad yourself, you cannot determine who is an Uttam Bhagavad. Mm. It takes one to know one, as they say, right? So, so in other words, there's, there's no actual like objective method to prove such a thing. No need to see the Uttam Bhagavad, which again, doesn't make the Guru less. Mm. Again, the problem comes when our faith requires that our guru has to be an Ityasiddha, or our lack of faith, should I say. No? Requires, demands, he has to be, because if he's not an Ityasiddha, everything collapses. That speaks about your faith, not about the standing of the guru. No? Or he has to be Uttam Bhagavad, no? or what not, whatever. No? Everyone has their own idea. 
in order to make us feel superior, in order to reaffirm our weak faith. Uh, in, instead of working on your own faith, you try to make the other person more than what the person is, and that's not natural, basically. So again, a deeper faith does not demand this blanket, absolute perfection in every sense in order to trust and surrender. I mean, but we need to acquire deeper faith. Mm. So sometimes it's say interesting. I mean, someone may say, okay, we may not know <clears throat> if the gurus need to see it or not, but we may know if he's an Uttam Bhagavat. But again, it takes an Uttam Bhagavat to realize one. And also if you go to the symptoms of an Uttam Bhagavat, they are given in Shastra, mostly they say, he sees Krishna everything and everything in Krishna. So how can you know that the person is having that vision? You know, unless you have that vision and you can really connect with that person. But again, sometimes we, we, we don't, we just establish that someone is an Uttam Bhagavad because the person has many temples, has initiated thousands of the disciples or whatever, has lots of knowledge or, or whatever, has a long beard, sings nicely, shiny turban, all externals no? to establish the most esoteric and internal <laughs> reality. Mm. Of course, the symptoms of external appreciation may mostly apply to a to a Kanishta Bhagavat, to a neophyte. Uh, <clears throat> but again, even if one is a Madhyam Bhakta, one may not be able to, again, ascertain who is an Uttam Bhagavat. No, that's not so easy to see. And there are, of course, degrees of being Kanishta, Madhyam, Uttam, this is not black and white. And sometimes it, it has been said, okay, but if you are an advanced Madhyam Bhagavat, such uh, such person can know who is an Uttam Bhagavat. So you, if you are a Kanishta, you should associate with such Madhyam who will show you who is an Uttam. But if you are a Kanishta, you don't know who is a Madhyam. That's the problem. <laughs> a Kanishta is correct. The very definition of a Kanishta is he doesn't know how to discern and discriminate between different types of people. and different. He doesn't know how to relate with different types of devotees. So how he will ascertain who is a Madhyam who will show in turn who is an Uttam. You follow my point, no? So, with this, I'm not, I'm not throwing you into a despair or oh, there's no way or we are totally lost. Actually, the main point is, what does it mean to not be lost? We will speak about now again. What, although there's no a thermometer to establish, he's she's Nitya Siddha, he's a Nutan Bhagavat. Our main focus should not be like how do I get to prove in a laboratory how what's the case. But the main focus is you have to be fully sincere in your search for truth, which is much more difficult than getting a thermometer and measuring. You need to see the Otamba. We want that because that's easier. <laughs> but the real proof to find whoever we have to find as guru is in the full sincerity of our inquiry for truth. And, and trusting Krishna will reciprocate mm, with my sincerity. She says in the Gita, sincerity is invincible. Mm. And this is precisely where Krishna's the Chaitya Guru comes into play. This is another facet of the Guru principle. Krishna in your heart. I mean, omniscient, knowing what's going on there. So if you are genuinely sincere, <clears throat> Krishna will make all the necessary arrangements for us according to the need of the moment, to whatever stage we are, to whatever we need to receive, to whomever we need to meet as, as guidance, shelter, guide, guardians. And if, if we are sincere in our search in whatever stage we are, and Krishna is, of course, 
taking note of that, that doesn't mean necessarily that our Guru will be an Itiasiddha as a result of our sincerity, or that the Guru even will be an Uttam Bhagavat, or a Sadhana Siddha, or an Itiasiddha, or an Uttam Bhagavat. Sometimes the Guru may be an advanced Madhyam Bhakta, or Sadhaka, whatever the case, and it doesn't mean that I was not sincere enough, or Krishna cheated me by sending me a half-baked Guru or something. It's not half-baked, that's my point. You know? Uh, of course, someone may say, but this is not an ideal scenario, Maharaj. It's not a Uttam Bhagavat, the highest possible available person. But who say that you are able to deal with such a high person as well? Hmm? And you may say, well, but if someone is an Uttam Bhagavat, there's no risk of falling, of him falling, so there's no risk of me going through the anxiety of my Guru's falling. Uh, but again, we may not be able to ascertain who is who. <laughs> So in some cases, again, we have to be sincere and we will be connected with someone who even if in, if in the future the person uh, has a problem, so to say, at least for some time, that person has rendered some purpose in our lives as our guru. Or, or maybe not, if, if there's no problem, of course, that will continue growing forever. So my point is, if, if the connection that we have had with a guru at some point may shows to, in time, shows to have some, there has to be, there are some problems with that guru. It doesn't mean that the connection was totally useless and, and without purpose from day one. Hmm. But we should be willing, careful not to go through those extremes, so to say. So a guru, again, doesn't necessarily have to be Uttam Bhagavad, need to see that even if, if we want to take the, the, the case even further, Srila Prabhupada, for example, says in his commentary to Padashambrita, verse 5, let me read his brief. He says, A neophyte Vaishnav or a Vaishnav situated on the intermediate platform, Madhyam, Kanista or Madhyam, can also accept disciples. But such disciples must be on the same platform, and it should be understood that they cannot advance very well toward the ultimate goal of life under his insufficient guidance. In other words, what Prabhupada is saying here, interesting point to begin with, he's saying even a Kanishta Bhakta can make disciples, or a Madhyam, of course, what to speak of a Nutam. That person can become Mantra Diksha Guru. However, the disciples of those Gurus need to have a more advanced Siksha in terms of getting to more advanced stages in case the Guru remains in that position. But of course, the idea is that if your Guru is a Kanishta and you are a Kanishta, but he's a more advanced Kanishta, and he's sincere, in time he will continue advancing to higher stages. So it's not that, oh my Guru Sikhanishta, he got stuck forever there. So if I advance more, of course, if the Guru is not advancing more, you need some other shelter. But if the Guru keeps advancing as you are advancing, there may not even need to, to get someone else, so to say. Hmm? It's clear the idea, right? So, of course... <clears throat> If one can find an Uttam Adhikari, Uttam Bhagavad and Tay Diksha, all well and good, unless, but again, you cannot prove that, <laughs> generally. Uh, but again, that doesn't guarantee that you are taking full benefit from the association of that person. Hmm? If someone is too advanced and you are too less advanced, you may not be able to, there may be a big gap in between in some cases. Hmm? So it's my point is not just enough to say, I have the mercy of, of, of Uttam Uttam Mahabhagavat by the mere Diksha connection. He initiated me, so I'm saved or I'm whatever. Hmm? 
I mean, you have to do something about what you are receiving from such high personality. The mercy of the guru has to, it's tangible. No? It's not just some abstract thing that I have the mercy and you are not doing anything. Mm-hmm. It's practical also. No? The guru will give teachings, will write books, will give examples, will give guide, personal guidance along the way. You have to do something with all that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to implement the guru's mercy in, in your life. Mm-hmm. Then you get the mercy of Krishna through that representative, so to say. Without Krishna's grace, you, you cannot advance. So that's how it works. No, we need Krishna's grace. We flow through the Guru. But that happens to come to us whenever we implement that. Hmm? Let me share one brief quote from Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta in this connection, an interesting one from Sajan Toshani. He says, Initiation puts a person on the true track and also imparts an initial impulse to go ahead. It cannot, however, keep one going for good unless one chooses to put forth his own voluntary effort. So he's making this point. You can have init- be initiated with the highest person on the planet. Great, but again, that's not all. You have to do your part. So considering the above, especially what Srila Prabhupada say, one should even not reject uh, a guru who is a Kanista or a Madhyam Bhagavat. If they are properly situated, they are acceptable. Mm-hmm. And properly situated doesn't mean necessarily super advanced, because by definition a kanista is not super advanced. Mm-hmm. But properly situated means that they're, they have a, a, a sincere heart, sincere heart, a level of understanding, a willingness to change and continue making progress, and they are not fanatics, offensive, and like I don't know, insincere and so on. So. For example, some of us may, to give another example in this connection, some of us may have had, I don't know, may have been initiated originally by someone who was a Kanista or Madhyam Bhakta who was sincere and practicing and nourishing our process. And we felt Krishna is coming to my life through this person. And for the last, for the first, whatever, 10 years of that period, that person was doing things nicely and we were being nourished by that. And eventually the person ended up being a sexual predator. But it was not before. It can happen. <laughs> so again, it doesn't mean that, oh, because the person who was my guru fell into that, it means that I was not sincere to begin with, and that's why I received such a guru. No, because again, there was a period of realistic experience, if you will. So because sometimes this is saying, no? okay, if, if your guru fell, whatever falling means, <laughs> it means you were not sincere to begin with. And that throws people into another layer of neurosis. Or if a guru fell, he never was a guru, which again, is not the case. It's a very black and white understanding. Uh, because again, someone can honestly represent the department of Guru Tattva, the Samasti principle, a Biasti Guru can honestly represent that during some time, and of course, eventually in time, have, have some difficulties. Mm-hmm. So there's place for that. Mm-hmm. So, again, it, uh, the point here is one as a disciple at that time was as sincere as one could, mm-hmm. and it's okay. We cannot just like, I'm not sincere enough. I'm not sincere enough. <laughs> I mean, we we should. Increase our sincerity, but that shouldn't become neurosis. So I was as sincere as I could, hopefully, in that moment, and Krishna came to me correspondingly to that, in reciprocation to that, representing 
himself through a person in the form that I needed at that particular moment. And that had a purpose at that moment. There's no need to deny the connection with that person if the person fell in time. Or to be like ungrateful, like I nothing, I received nothing, everything was a fake from day one. That's not necessarily the case. Again, of course, if a guru falls, again, whatever falling means, because each person may have their own idea of that, <laughs> that will show that, yeah, the person was not probably, at least, at least was not an Uttam Bhagavat, that's for sure, but it doesn't mean that it was a fake in every sense of the term. No? So if you ask, well, why Krishna sent me that person again? Probably that was the guru that I needed at that stage of my journey. And then if I'm sincere, I will re receive further connection according to my necessity. I have to trust that principle. I have to be sincere to my work and trust that Krishna is doing his work, as we always say. No? Our job is saranagati. And saranagati means surrender and trust that Krishna is doing his job. Your job is to trust Krishna's job, so to say. No? <laughs> <clears throat> As we know, someone asked once, Srila Prabhupada, what's better between Nitya Siddha and Sadhana Siddha? He said the important word here is Siddha. No, we are not here, we are not for an ego competition. No, like, oh, my gurus need to see that. No, yours is Sadhana Siddha, sorry. Indeed, sometimes, I mean, need to see that generally is very unpro improbable, less probable that that the guru will be need to see that because need to see that are always accompanying Bhagavan in his performance of Leela and whatever it is happening. So generally they are not coming separate from him and his entourage here or anywhere. Uh, and even in connection to a guru who may not be need to see that, but another form of Siddha, as we know, Sadhana, um, Sanatana Goswami says in Brihad Bhagavatam Brita, in one sense the Sadhana Siddha is higher. We don't want to speak in terms of higher or lower, but because the sadhana siddha has been put to test, he has passed through many tests. The nitya siddha is always nitya siddha. Well, the very definition speaks that. Again, I'm not saying lower, higher, but just we can again learn from them in one sense. At least in my personal case, one of the most sorry effective ways for one to learn is that you learn from the lives and struggles of your mentors even, of, of the tests that they have to go through, their journeys along with you. But if someone is always perfect in every sense, omniscient and no possibility of any mistake whatsoever, <laughs> we will be deprived of that experience as students. That won't be so enriching to us, so to say. As we mentioned, the case of Vilba Mangala Thakur. Now, is Vilba Mangala Thakur less of a Sita because of his background with Chintamani and a prostitute? No, no on the contrary, no, we may, it's more relatable to us and those kind of examples inspire us. No, wow, he went through that and now he's Vilba Mangala Thakur. No? So that gives him hope. <laughs> mm. and, 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 and because if, if every guru needs to see that, then no sadhaka could ever become guru. No pra practitioner, I mean, I'm not saying that the sadhaka has to want to be a guru, <laughs> but just in principle, if every guru just is someone descending from the spiritual world, non-practitioner on earth could ever reach that place because all, all of them have to, have to come from that. And that's not something that is too realistic because, again, most of them are with Bhagavan in his lila. Mm -hmm. So before concluding this section, that somehow I hope you will be, we are able to connect with what we are talking today, 
one one argument that sometimes is being given to the idea that gurus need to see this that in Sri Guru and his grace sometimes devotees ask Srila Siddhar Maharaj is the guru always need to see them and he says yes so for some it's like okay there you have there is the proof <laughs> but then also in other sections he said the guru can be Madhyam Bhagavat so how can you be a Madhyam Bhagavat and be a need to see that at the same time it doesn't compute he, he's not even saying the gurus can be in sadhana siddha. He's saying he can be a Madhyam Bhagavad, which is not a siddha yet. He's an advanced sadhak. So how to harmonize? On one side, the gurus always need a siddha. The guru can be an advanced sadhaka. So we should understand when Srila Siddhartha is saying the gurus always need a siddha, he's referring to Samasti Guru, to the principle of Sri Guru, eternal, perfect, represented in Sri Krishna himself, the ever-perfected agency yeah, of Samasti Guru Tattva, Krishna himself. Mm. Need to see that eternally perfect. Mm. Mm. He is not referring to each single Biasti Guru individual who, who serves in that capacity, um, who may be represented that agency in one level or another. Mm. Because if we don't understand that in that way, and you say, whoever is in the individual who is in the position of Guru is a need to see that by law, so to say. The position of guru can increasingly become the position of dogma in that case. No? He has to be, he's need to see that now he's guru. He, before being guru, he was not need to, now he became whatever. No? Uh, or <laughs> so the point is that now if you think whoever serves in that role has to be need to see that, and therefore he's untouchable and he's immune to any fault, what type of untouchable that person ends up becoming? No? Untouchable and untouchable in the outcased sense. <laughs> So anyhow, some words I want to share in connection to <clears throat> why sometimes we may feel this need of making the Guru Nitesida or Uttam Bhagavat. Sorry if I extended with this a little bit, but I consider it's important to clarify. Uh, so let's go to the next section. We have a few minutes yet. Two more sections with your permission or without it. So the next section will be about how Shastra always speaks of Guru or mostly always in ideal in an idealistic way <clears throat> so i will explain what do i mean by this which is in connection to today's topic as well because we are saying all the things and we are saying there is cases where the guru may not be an itasiddha may not be a sadhana siddha may not be an uttam bhagavat may not even be a madhyam bhakta probably say can be even a knishat <laughs> so at this point someone may come to us with the with the whole parades of quotes from scriptures who are saying who are speaking about the glories of Sri Guru, the position of Sri Guru, all of which seem to indicate that the Guru is always situated in the highest possible uh, level of spiritual realization because there are so many quotes about that and of course again we acknowledge the possibility of, of Gurus being totally pure and surrendered uh, and situated there, of course, that's our hope. Because if we think there's nobody there in that situation, that somehow makes the whole parampara system into a failure. Mm -hmm. So while while that's possible, I think it's also important to emphasize from which place the shastra makes these statements, where it's giving this like absolute glorification of Sri Guru. Mm -hmm. So. <clears throat> Every time the Shastra uses the word Guru, unless specific cases where the verse, the Shastra will be speaking when to reject the Guru, who is deviated, the, apart from that 
so-called exception to the rules, if you will, every time the Shastra speaks about the Guru, Shastra is assuming that the Guru it Shastra is referring to is qualified to execute the function. You follow? The assumption is there. So we should read that knowing that the assumption is there. So from that perspective only, assuming that the one who is serving as guru is perfectly represented at agency, from that place only the Shastra is saying what it says about the guru. Hmm? Speaking of the guru as synonym with Sri Guru, speaking of the guru as synonym with Krishna, a Vyasti representative who perfectly is expressing the will of the Samasti principle, the Shastra is assuming this is what's happening. That's ideal scenario, the ideal stage. And from that place, the Shastra is speaking. And this is not the only case. In many cases, the Shastra is speaking from a, what I may call in this case, idealistic way. Idealistic by, from the most ideal possible perspective. When someone is expressed from its ideal expression, like Chaitanya Charitamrita says, Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra Kai, Lava Matra, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hai. From, in one nanosecond of Sadhu Sangha, you attain all perfection. You may say, like, that didn't happen. I'm already two decades and counting, and I'm still here. But the point is, ideally speaking, if everything is in place, if the association that is given and the association, the one who is receiving the association are in the best ideal possible situation, one nanosecond of Sadhu Sangha gives all perfection. So the Shastra is speaking from that ideal place, idealistic place, although it may not be the case in most cases, but it makes that point. It has the potential to be like that, ideally speaking. Or Shastra sometimes says, if you just chant half a syllable of Srinam, you attain everything. And you say, again, two decades chanting hours per day and still counting. <coughs> but Shastra is saying, if you chant properly, I mean, every all potencies are in Srinam, near Sarva Saktis, if your heart is full in the right place, half a syllable is more than enough. So again, the Shastra is speaking from that ideal place. Again, that realization may not be our experience yet, uh, but potentially, idealistically, so to say, all that can happen if all the conditions are in its place. You follow my idea? No? So similarly, as Shastra will speak in this way about Sadhu Sangha, about Srinam, the same idealistic language is found in Shastra when it speaks about Guru. Shastra speaks about Guru while taking for granted, basically, that when while speaking about Guru, we are speaking about the most ideal level of representation, the most ideal type of personality serving in that capacity. The Shastra is not at that, in, that, in those moments considering a partial conception of Guru, a partial representation of Guru. It's speaking about the ideal form. And taking the ideal guru for granted, again, the ideal example of a guru for granted, the Shastra then speaks about how disciples should reciprocate in relation to such an ideal guru, which is full surrender. So that's why we will go to Shastra. You have to fully surrender to the guru. Shastra says, yeah, but first the Shastra is assuming that the guru is fully a perfect representative. And then you have to express full surrender. If that's not the case, then you have to adopt a more nuanced understanding of, of how to interrelate with that principle. Because again, the Shastra is taking, and, and the Shastra is not all, only taking for granted that whenever it speaks about Guru, it's the best representation, but it's taking for granted 
that the reader is understanding that Shastra is taken for granted. <laughs> He's talking from this idealistic point of view. Shastra is not clarifying, hey, Sumati, hey, Bhakturasa. I'm saying this about Guru, but this considering that the one who I'm speaking about is ideally representing the prince. It's not say that, but it's implied. And we should, we as readers should know that. <laughs> because if we don't know that, that can create some problems. So when you know that, you won't apply that description, idealistic description of Guru, literally to every single person serving in the capacity of Guru, because not necessarily all of them may be doing that from the ideal person platform. So that has created some misunderstanding in the Gaudiya community, as you may imagine. <laughs> and you can add to that the, the idea that in India, as a culture, there's a strong respect for elders, which is something nice and beautiful. If, even if you are, but the, the point is that even if you are misbehaving as an elder, you are worshipable. You see that in the Mahabharata a lot. Dhritarashtra is not the best guy in town, but he's respected. He's an elder, he's the king, but he's with his dual dualistic mind and like he's doing so many but elders are to be respected. So and the guru is typically depicted as an elder. So if you combine this cultural respect for elders and someone is a guru, it's just to be respected despite his misbehavior, and then it starts to become a little bit complicated, so one has to exercise proper discrimination. The one devotee was telling me the other day, that he lives in India, he many times saw that in, in some villages, the milkman will come, and he's an elder for the kids, and the kids will call the milkman Maharaji, which is a respected title for some, not because he's a, a king or a sannyasi, but just because he's elder than them. To Maharaji, just that shows the degree which this is embedded in the Indian DNA, respect for elders, which again is something beautiful, <laughs> but as with everything beautiful, can lead to some non-beautiful things if it's not properly applied in some cases. So again, cultural, even culturally speaking, it's important to understand this detail. It's not a detail; it's something crucial regarding from which place Shastra is speaking about the Guru. So we can also understand that when the Guru does not fit the ideal description that the Shastra is given, in that case one is expected to not show extreme false surrender to a partial representation of God. One is expected to show a proportionate level of surrender to how much the Guru is actually representing Krishna. You follow my point? If there is no full representation, you cannot demand full surrender. Like in Sri Guru and His Grace, again, Sri Lassila Maharaj will speak about a lot about the Guru from the Shastric perspective, like in absolute terms. No? You have to fully surrender, the Guru is absolute, the Guru is perfect, and he will emphasize how we are to give ourselves fully to the Guru. But then when someone asks him on another and similar occasion in that same book, but what if the Guru is not on the highest platform, and this happens with him or whatever, then he won't reply in those absolute terms. He will adopt a much more nuanced way of replying, addressing the specific individual case. So he's making, again, you see how him and so many others have this idea in place, but they may not be clarifying overtly to us, but we need to understand that. <laughs> we come from the West, and sometimes West had a lot of literalism, everything taken literally, and we lose sight of the nuance. 
So again, one thing to, is to speak of generally about the guru principle in its ideal expression, and how one is to reciprocate to that ideal expression, it's okay, but something different is to deal with the localized individual expression of that, and how to deal with that specific circumstance in each case. Again, in some cases, the individual representation may be a fully perfected representative, and we are to fully surrender, but that's not necessarily the case uh, always. So in this connection, let's continue and finish today, conclude with one last section where we will further unpack this idea. The idea, and this, this section is called, we should surrender to a guru proportionate to how much he or she re represents Sri Guru. Hmm? We should surrender to the Vyasti Guru, to the individual, proportionate to how much he or she represents the Samasti principle, so to say. Hmm? So again, before, because sometimes when, whenever it's speaking in the Gaudiya community, sometimes it's spoken about Guru and disciple. Very quickly, the, the point is, how much we should surrender to the Guru. But before speaking about how much, how, how much one should surrender to the Guru, first we should clearly define which are the qualities of a Guru, that a Guru should be properly exhibiting, which are the symptoms of a bona fide Guru to begin with. But also, even on top of that, how much those qualities of a Guru are being expressed by someone serving in that capacity. You follow? We, we should think about the things. How much, which are the qualities of the guru to begin with, and then how much those symptoms are being expressed in each particular individual, Vyasti guru, who is representing the principle of Sri Guru. Hmm? And we should have the same level of rigor, rigor, you say, uh, to, 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 ex how to say, to explore in this direction and the same level of rigor that sometimes we demand total surrender from the disciple because sometimes that's not happening we demand full surrender from the disciple but we do not expect in detail how much the one who is demanding the full surrender the guru how much that person is representing the principle of Sri Guru so in other words as much as those qualities are being represented in the Vyasti Guru in that same measure we are to surrender to that principle. Hmm? If we don't take the time to corroborate how much these qualities are present in a guru, and we just take for granted, oh, Shastra is saying that the guru is this, 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 and this is a guru, so I give myself fully. If we don't take the time to discern about that properly, sometimes in the name of full surrender, we, we may be indulging in, in, in some dysfunctional exercise. We may be demanding... Uh, a very excessive level of submission, so to say. From the disciple who is offering that submission, we may be demanding that, but also the guru may be demanding a level of submission that he or she does not have the qualification to deal with. Do you follow? It may be abusive in both directions, dysfunctional for both, and the result of this equation many times is, is abuse, basically. I demand a level of surrender which is not proportionate to the level I as a guru am representing what I should be representing. So that's not healthy. If a guru is not representing Sri Guru, I should not surrender to that. That's not Sri Guru coming through that particular guru. You know, if, for example, if a guru demands, I don't know, go against your values in life, go against your principles and allow 
all types of abuse and mistreatment and misrepresentation of the teaching on other people, compromise your integrity, I don't know, engage in lies and untruths and embrace spiritual bypassing, of course, without saying those things, <laughs> but those being the implications of those, the instructions of, the, of that situation, of course, we as disciples, we shouldn't do that. It's not, no, okay, he's my guru, he's asking me to sacrifice all my integrity, I should fully surrender. No. Because that guru is not representing Sri Guru. Mm. That's not Sri Guru acting through that particular person. Again, hopefully that, that, that never happens to any of you. But sometimes that happens and has happened. So we need to exercise some caution in that regard, some discernment. Mm. So in those cases, if we happen to be receiving some instruction from a Biasti Guru, which does, is not in line with the Guru principle, we may have to take some healthy distance and pray and wait and try and see how everything unfolds. But we should not compromise our ideals, our values, our principles, integrities in the name of submission <clears throat> and surrender. Mm. Again, we generally, sometimes this is seen in the Gaudiya scenario, sometimes we demand extreme surrender from the disciple. But again, how much surrender do we demand from the Guru? Mm proportionately to the minimum the guru has to be as surrender as a disciple ideally more <laughs> but sometimes the demand of surrender goes all in the in one particular direction so how much do we take the time again to be rigorous about the position of the guru before demanding that level of surrender from a disciple if we do not do so it's not healthy for this for the disciple to surrender absolutely completely and it's not healthy again for the guru to have a disciple surrendering on a level that the guru is not, how to say, proportionate, then a level that is not proportionate to the level that the guru is not surrendering himself, so to say, <laughs> in reciprocation to the surrender of the disciple. Mm. Mm. So, to put it in simple words, it's for, for the disciple, it will be healthy to surrender in a level that the person who is receiving that surrender at least a minimum is equally surrendered. No? If you surrender to me, it had to be minimum surrender on that same level to, to honor that properly. Because if not, it lends to abuse, again, to idolatry, over-idolization, and eventually cynicism, because we, we maybe feel betrayed and then we stop trusting and we think oh, that's fake in every single case. Mm. So again, it may be problematic not only for a disciple who is fully surrendering in a way that he or she shouldn't, but also for the guru who is receiving a level of surrender that he or she is, doesn't have the capacity to process, <laughs> is not able to deal with. So that will affect his or her own situation, his or her own even role and standing in his service as guru. So we are saying these things not just to protect the disciples and attack false gurus, just to protect both parties, both sides. <laughs> and cheating and misrepresentation can come from both parties. You know? So it's not about one being better, worse, or attacking one or not the other or something. So remember, just to make this point one more time before finishing, when Shastra speaks about Guru, Shastra assumes that the Guru is always a bona fide, perfect representative, so to say, that hmm? will represent, like Prabhupada will say, a transparent medium of transcendence. No? The Vyasti Guru is someone who is perfectly representing the Guru Tattva department. And therefore, that person 
is called Sri Guru because of his level of transparency in representing some Sri Guru's agency. And from that place, Shastra is saying all that it says about Guru. Hmm? But again, the problem is with someone who is, someone occupies the post of Guru, but doesn't have the qualification that Shastra is speaking about, hmm? but demands the level of worship or surrender or following from someone. Uh, and that person is occupying the post of Guru, but is not representing Sri Guru. Hmm? At least not fully. Again, I'm not saying this this in black and white terms. No, it's not like, okay, he's a need to see the perfect guru or he's a cheater and faker. This can happen in so many levels. Hmm? So, but the point is, it's not healthy to worship someone uh, above the level in which that person is representing Krishna's will, the agency of Triguru. Hmm? Because remember, just to conclude, the guru is... <laughs> God in a representational way. So as much as the Guru is representing God, he's God or she's God in that sense. As much as it's not happening, it's not happening. <laughs> so, and again, the Guru is not God in every sense of the term. That will be Mayabad again. So when we say the Guru is God in a representational sense, therefore we are surrendering not to a person, but we are surrendering to their representation that come through that person, not to a person separate from their representation. We are not surrendering to that. As we already mentioned, what makes a guru especially worshipable is the degree to which that person represents Krishna. If you take that out, he's one more person like anybody else. So as long or as much as that does not happen, as much as that person is not represented, there is no need to surrender in that level, and worship the lack of representation of that person. <laughs> you follow. But as much as the person represents, we worship that side of representation. If there's a part that is not representing, we shouldn't be forced to worship that. Mm. Of course, in practical terms, it may not be easy to, to establish how much a Vyasti Guru is representing the Samasti Guru, in which level. But at least to begin with, we should know that this is possible, and we should have this nuanced scenario in mind and not thinking black and white terms like okay conditioned soul or pure devotee no need to see that or false guru no there are so many possibilities in between and we should be aware of that and, and deal with that accordingly so let's go to a brief conclusion just to to wrap up what we shared today so remember god in one sense god does not descend as guru but God descends through Guru. It's a word, but it makes a difference. <laughs> so we understand in which sense Guru is one with Krishna and different as we began our lecture today. Therefore, we say that Guru is, a, a, how to say, the Prakash or the manifestation of God. He's not God, literally. <laughs> if you go to the fourth verse of the first chapter of Hadi Lila, Guru is mentioned as such, you know, as a manifestation of God. God is descending through Guru, not as Guru. Guru and Krishna are one, uh, not in person, literally. No, They're not the same person. They're one in glory, as much as Guru represents, again, Krishna. <laughs> Guru is rep representing a mercy that is coming through him, no? a light we could say that he has received. No, it's not an independent light, so to say. And, and we should, as receiver of that light or mercy, 
acknowledge that accordingly. Because if we forget this, if we speak, skip sorry, the macrocosmic original fountainhead of Guru Tattva that is behind the individual, and we just jump to the human individual without the clear difference between these two sides of the Guru equation, again, we risk to engage in, in idolatry or, or other forms of evasiveness, so to say. So, yeah, so, of course, there will be always be some... Some of these problems that we are mentioning here also will be always there when, when the position of Guru, especially, is, make some, is made into something ecclesiastical or, or institutional, which happens to be the case, as we will be talking in other theory, in our classes, uh, without proper understanding. So as a way and as an attempt to counteract that, solve that, let's try to make the position of Guru uh, what it actually is. So that's basically the spirit behind this series of lectures on Guru Tattva. So I hope that helped. We'll conclude here and share a brief homework for those who want for next, during this week, which will be just let's meditate on possible misunderstandings that we may still have or may need to correct in relation to Guru Tattva. In our own particular case or something we have witnessed and we feel the need to, to properly further align with reality, so to say. So we finish here and see you next Tuesday for our second part of this Guru Tattva series, we will be talking about if is Sri Guru fallible or infallible, which somehow is connected with many points that we have shared today. Sri Guru Tattva Ki Jai, Sri Man Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Sri Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramanan Haribo, Vanchakalpata Rubyascha, Kripa Sindhu Pyevacha, Patitanam Pavani Pyo Vaishnavi Pyunamonamaha Anantakuti Vaishnava Brindaki Jai Gaudhari Bhu